0: Hello, welcome to new and returning listeners. I am Danica Ramsey Brimberg and your host of this episode of New Books in Irish Studies under New Books Network. For today's, for today's episode, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Tracy Collins, author of the recently published Female Monasticism in Medieval Ireland and Archaeology. Welcome, Tracy, to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, would you like to tell us a little about yourself?
1: Uh, yes well i'm um irish I'm a native of Limerick in uh, on the west coast of Ireland and I went to college in University College Cork studying English and archaeology and I also stayed there to do my masters and in nineteen ninety five I graduated and became a commercial archaeologist so um, I set up my own business um, with uh, Frank Coyne, um and was doing that work until very recently when last June I took up a position as archaeologist in the National Monument Service, which um, regulates and protects the archaeological heritage in Ireland. So that's where I am at the
0: moment. And uh, for listeners that are unfamiliar with your book, what is female monasticism in medieval Ireland and archaeology about? Well,
1: it's really all the archaeological sites in Ireland that relate to holy women. Um, and the medieval period in Ireland dates from about uh, the 5th century through to the 16th century. Um, and so all the sites that are related to uh, nuns for the later medieval period or religious women more generally for the early period. Um, and looking at all their archaeological sites. So I have about 51 archaeological sites for the early medieval Uh, female religious, and about 65 for the later medieval. And of course, there's a bit of an overlap between them as well.
0: Um, So then on the most, I guess, the most basic level, uh, what do the terms female monastic and then female religious mean? Yeah, well, um,
1: female religious is a very broad term. And traditionally, when we were looking at uh, religious females, we would be thinking about nuns. But of course, in the medieval period there were other types of religious women as well, and this female religious covers those types of people. And those people I'm thinking of are uh recluses or anchorites or vowesses or mystics, particularly from the later medieval period. And then female monasticism then is probably the um the female term. male males would be male monastics, and then female monasticism really relates to more traditional nuns that we would have seen in the later medieval period. So that's what the two terms uh, mean in my book.
0: And then what inspired you to write your uh, doctoral thesis and then this book on this topic? Well,
1: really, when I was um, coming to the end of my master's studies, um, I was introduced to the work of the British archaeologist Roberta Gilchrist. And Roberta Gilchrist has really led the field in um, studying religious women um, and archaeology and bringing an engendered approach to archaeology. And I was really taken with with her book and then her subsequent books afterwards. So I'm a real Roberta Gilchrist fan. Um, And then, uh, so I thought, um, what about the nunneries in Ireland? Because not many people had written about them. When I became a professional archaeologist, I was doing a lot of work um, in advance of development and I would come across places where there was legends that there was a nunnery there or it was written on a map Um, and I just became interested in it and then uh, I took up a lecturing position in University College Cork for a couple of years and I was encouraged to pursue a PhD and I thought nunneries would be um,
0: an ideal research topic and that's where it um, took off from. Um, I'm a major Roberta Gilcrest fan too. So, And then I'm now a fan of yours just because it's it was so – the book was so interesting to read. And especially as a person that does interdisciplinary research myself, I just was really excited about all the different materials. Um, and then, which leads me into my next question of, what was your approach to the archaeological material as well as the textual material to reveal more about the female religious?
1: Yeah, um, well, I tried by taking Roberta Gilchrist's lead, um, I tried to be as broad as possible when looking at the archaeological evidence. And you'll know from your work as well, um, you have to look at the the entire spectrum of evidence. So when you're looking at the medieval period, you do have the historical evidence to look to. But primarily, I'm led by the archaeological evidence. And I'd found previously that um, a lot of sites were, were written off. Um, and were told they couldn't possibly be nunneries because they they were too big or they were too small or there was something not right about them. Um, So I tried to take a broad approach and if something had a local folk memory of a nunnery, I considered it, yes, that possibly could have been a nunnery for maybe a generation or two. So I tried to take um, uh, a broad positive approach rather than cutting things out of of the view of nuns. I,
0: I wanted to bring all the evidence in. And then how did you go about finding your sites as well as defining what was a nunnery? Um, Well, uh,
1: the the first thing was that um, the archaeology itself, and you'll know this from your archaeological background, that the archaeology itself is not going to tell you whether it was a a male house or a female house. So we do need the historical evidence to tell us that. Um, But the way I found the sites was there's a lot of work that's already been done. So, for instance, for Ireland, we have the Archaeological Survey of Ireland, which um, categorises and classifies all archaeological sites in Ireland from prehistory all the way up until some 19th and 20th century sites um, are on the Archaeological Survey of Ireland, which is free, publicly and freely available for anybody who would like to see it. Um, And then there's older books, of course, and previous works. So, for Ireland, it's um, Gwyn and Hadcock's Medieval Religious Ireland book. Um, and Britain, of course, and Scotland, have they have their own um, equivalent of Gwyn and Hadcock too. Um, and then local histories were very important as well. And then map mapping. So first edition six-inch maps, which date in Ireland to the 19th century. Um, a lot of antiquities are drawn on those. And then the subsequent editions of those maps. So when you draw all that information together, you, you really have a very good data set on, on which to start uh, preparing for your fieldwork then.
0: Perfect. And then with you divide monasticism into sort of the two periods with your sites. You talk about um, 500 to 1100 AD and then 1100 to 1540 AD. How did, I guess, female monasticism involve between over the in within those periods as well as over the long course and then what was the most noticeable distinction between the two periods well the
1: the first thing to say is that in Ireland we divide our medieval period into the early early medieval and later medieval but it's very arbitrary Um, so archaeologists we like to categorize things and we like to put things into boxes so there probably was a significant overlap between the early medieval and the later medieval. But for the purposes of study, we find that that 12th century break is a convenient one because this is when we know from history that the the church in Ireland was being reformed. So around 1100, a number of synods uh, were were held about how they were going to change um, the administration of the church and what the church actually looked like. Mm -hmm. And this is where we get the break from our classic early medieval sites of, um, you know, uh, circular enclosures with small churches in them. Uh, Clonmacnoise and Glendalough spring to mind. And then in the 12th century, with the reform of the church, the continental orders are brought into Ireland. And that is a, a watershed of how the architecture and the archaeology change, because the cloister plan, which is the church with ranges of buildings around, surrounded by a cloister or a garden, are first introduced to Ireland. I think Mellifont in County Lao that founded in 1142 would be one of the first uh, cloistral monastic sites to be built in Ireland. Um, but of course, there was probably a bit of an overlap. And perhaps some of those early sites may have changed how they did things, but they might not have changed their structures. Um, and then, of course, as another layer on top of that is in 1169, the Anglo-Normans from from England and Wales, come into Ireland um, and they've already been through a reform of the church um, and they're bringing more continental orders with them as well. It's kind of like a two, uh, two-wave thing but rather than see it as um, an event, the reform of the church as an event, it was very much a process so over many years um, and a lot of um, overlapping archaeology and architecture probably.
0: So then with those time periods you make a very active choice to then not use none for the yeah. early medieval material as opposed to the later and so i why did you make that choice
1: um i made that choice because um of the modern perception and the mental template that we have of say nuns in ireland so when people think of an of a nun uh Many people of my age would have been taught by nuns growing up, and so they have an image of what a nun would have been would have looked like. Um, and probably in the later medieval period, they were probably fairly similar. they they had their habit and they had their veil and they were all well covered up. But for the early medieval per- er, period, we really don't know how these religious women dressed. and so in order to avoid being anachronistic, I thought we won't call them nuns for the early medieval period. We'll, we'll just call them female religious um, because we just don't have the evidence that they looked the same um, as the late medi- medieval period. Um, and that's why I decided to um, to try and make that distinction.
0: And then how did you, uh, so were there, with those distinctions, how Different than was thinking more a bit more broadly. How different was female being female religious different from that from being, I guess, male religious?
1: So in the for the early medieval period, uh, we we don't really know, um, and I would think that there were independent um, female religious houses, so independent communities of of women in the early medieval period, but they probably would have had a community of men as well. Um, and in the larger sites like or Glendalough, or Tala and Finglas, we, we know already that there was community, uh, communities of religious women there. So I imagine that the early medieval period, um, they had either mixed communities or communities in, in close proximity to each other. Um, but because we don't have the excavated evidence for that, that I'm I'm theorizing really on that. And then for the late medieval period, there seems to be more of a segregation, although there are a number of sites um, that male houses and female nunneries were actually quite close together. Um, And so I think in particular in the 12th century, when there was a reform of the church, there was an experimental approach as well as to how these communities would have have, um, lived and worked together. Um, But then as the later medieval period, moved on from the 12th century, there seemed to be more segregation between uh,
0: female houses and male houses. Um, And then with this idea of independence and separation, um, it's making me think of in the first chapter, you just describe medieval nuns as being um, significant agents. Um, So how influential were they were within, I guess, the male dominated world?
1: Well, I think, um, uh, and following again, Roberta Gilchrist here, um she concluded and um, and i've concluded from the irish evidence as well that um female religious were significant agents in their kind of more local sphere so they weren't kind of um big in the global sense of monasticism but they were quite significant agents in their in their local communities and i say that for kind of a, a number of reasons um firstly if they weren't important they wouldn't have any patrons and benefactors to um, support them and support their community over long periods of time. Some of these nunneries uh, lasted for hundreds of years. Um, and so they were also, many of them were related. What we do know of the history of some of these nuns were that they, they were related to their patrons and benefactors. So they were kind of almost like um, an extension of their of their larger families. And they helped manage land and um be a burial place for for their own families. um, And so they could remember their ancestors over
0: time through through prayer and contemplation. And then how did that agency compare to, I guess, women that weren't necessarily nuns or female religious?
1: Yeah, well, um, some people would argue that, um, you know, uh, going into a, a nunnery and going into an enclosed space and being cut away from the world was a very negative thing. But um, you could also see it as a as a positive for a medieval woman, because in, um, the medieval status of women they were very much um, they were seen and recorded in history through their menfolk. So whether that would be their fathers or their husbands or their sons later on, and um, so becoming a nun and getting into a um, a nunnery where you could maybe be an office holder. It was a way of um, probably having a profession and you could go all the way to perhaps being the abbess or being in control of the nunnery and its assets. So you could see it kind of as a, a professional career as well as a vocation in a way that um, you wouldn't have a professional career if you, were, if you were a lay person in medieval society. You'd be probably somebody's, somebody's wife.
0: And then how was, I guess, the female religious perceived by the church and society? You've touched a bit on it, but could you speak on it more?
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, well, in the, again, there's two sides, there's two sides to every story. So in the early medieval period, we have, um, there are those historians who say that women were, um, uh, were seen in, religious women were seen in a very positive light. And so we're probably looking, the most popular would be St. Bridget. Um, and that they were considered very positively. And then in the later medieval period, um, they were pro- there's, again, historians would suggest that nuns were not seen positively, but they must, have, they must have been in a certain way because, again, patrons and benefactors were putting their time, effort and money into supporting them. Um, so while they didn't have probably uh, a very important role in the male hierarchy of, hierarchy of the church at the time, they did occupy a very important position for their own families and their local communities.
0: And then particularly with modern ideas and a concept, we sort of have this perceived this form of rigidity with early Christianity and with um, monasteries and nunneries. Uh, yet noticeably in your research, it was actually incredibly fluid and diverse. Uh, could you talk a little bit, particularly as how it relates to female monasticism?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. Um- when uh, when I started looking at, um, say, later medieval nunneries, I was expecting them all to have um, a cloistral arrangement with a church and buildings around it. Um, and then I realised that probably the minority of the 65-odd sites I was looking at had that arrangement. And many of them may have only had, like, a small church with um, uh, an attached a attached living accommodation, or perhaps it was a, a little house to the side, um, and so it seems that uh, the ritual and performance of how they lived in in their in their female monastery or their nunnery was very important. But the actual structures around them could be very diverse, and it would probably depended a lot on how much money their patrons actually had. Um. So because they were a lot of local people would have um, supported these nunneries. They probably didn't have the same type of money that many of the the larger male monasteries would have had. But having said that, when you actually start looking and comparing the male houses with the female houses, there are many uh, male houses which are quite small and modest and varied in character as well. So um, again, it comes back to Roberta Gilchrist's point that... um, the female monasticism shouldn't be seen as deviant to um, the standard male house. There was a a variety or a spectrum of how of buildings um, and the ritual and performance that they carried out and the the divine office they were using every day um, was kind of creating creating this religious world around them and the buildings and the structures maybe didn't matter so much.
0: Um, So did... Particularly with the cloisteral agree with the cloisteral mm-hmm. setup. Um, I think in the t- if I remember correctly, with the book you mentioned that three actually did follow it. Um, were they then? I guess with those three, were they similar or? But what did you find? Were they very different? Well, those who
1: those monasteries which did have a cloisteral arrangement, and I reckon from the archaeology and the historical descriptions I have, there was probably about ten or twelve that would have had a cloisteral mm-hmm. arrangement, and of that number only three of them are actually upstanding in the field so you can actually go and see them and of those three um they're all in the province of munster which is in southern ireland And they were all of the augustinian order um so you would imagine that they would be all very similar but in actual fact they're all very different they have their church and they have their cloister and ranges can be identified but they're all very different um so at a one has its cloister on the south side, one has its cloister to the north side of the church, and then at St Catherine's, which we'll probably talk about in a bit more detail, the church actually projected um from one side of the cloister, which is a which is a unique arrangement in Ireland, and I think there's only one example of it in England at Dartford. Um so it was highly unusual that the church, which had to be kept east-west, um, projected from the from the cloister in that one. So we've got, we're in the same region of the country, we've got the same order, and yet the the three uh, nunneries are very different in
0: layout. Um, Continuing with the ideas of arrangement spatially and um, metaphorically, you talk about in the book uh, the enclosures. And so how were the contradictory ideas of enclosure, yet you also... Of ha- talking about of having nuns, also they couldn't be self sufficient, if I remember correctly. Um, how was those two ideas resolved, uh, both in terms of the landscape and within society? Um, well, the
1: the landscape and society. Um, I think some of them were in the in England. Gilchrist found that many of her nunneries were very secluded, but in Ireland. Um, I found they they were much closer to settlements. So um, uh, Diane Hall, who has written a history on the later medieval nuns, suggests that they were, in Ireland, closer, more closer to settlements or where their patrons lived um, because it was a m- more secure and a, m- a more turbulent and violent um, place. But having said that, it was probably because they had more ties to the local community as well. Um, so they were, so with St. Catherine's where I did my excavations, it's kind of, it's in a secluded place, but yet it's very close to the medieval settlement. It's less than two kilometers away and it's close to its, uh, where the patron lived in, um, Shannon Castle. Um, so I think a lot of the enclosure is more of a state of mind than actual physical walls, uh, around places. So I have, um, there's very little evidence that these nunneries were surrounded by high walls. And perhaps where they did survive in, say, cities and towns, um, it was probably the walls were marking their their land property rather than trying to keep the nuns in and people out. So I think we should look at enclosure more as a state of mind than actual um, a line drawn physically in the landscape, which were keeping the nuns in and keeping um, lay people out.
0: Um, with the landscape, did uh, the female religious or the nunneries have any power relatively as regards lands, roots, or the adjacent settlements?
1: Uh, well, they would have had um, they they would have had k- connections with the with the um, the local settlements, um, and we know where uh, several nunneries, their churches were actually parish churches. So they would have had lay people coming in and sharing their churches on a regular basis, um, but in for Ireland, uh, many of the the nunneries seem to have been established uh, by settlements that were already there. Whereas in England, some of some of the nunneries were established, say, um, on virgin ground and settlements built up around them. So there was a, a, a different slight difference in in how foundations happened between England and Ireland. And I think that's because of um, the time that the reform was happening. The English reform happened at an earlier date than the reform in Ireland.
0: And then with the clearly talk about the uniqueness of the physical structures of each ecclesiastic sites, but were there any reoccurring features um, among them at least a majority of them, or them overall.
1: Um, well, of course, in all of these sites, um, the church was the was the most important, and um, so the church was a um, in all cases were rectangular structures, um, and they're all medieval churches are always orientated east west with the high altar in the east end, um, and so all of all of my sites would have had um, a church. Now, that could have been a quite large church, maybe it's, as it's at St. Catherine's, or it could have been a very small church. Um, I'm thinking of maybe uh, somewhere like the nuns' church in, in uh, Clamont-Noise is very small. Um, and so the size of the church probably reflected the size of the community and whether it was a parish church or not as well. Um, but in general, the nunnery churches in Ireland were... Um, they didn't have transepts; they were quite small, long and narrow, um, and much smaller perhaps than than some of the ones that Roberta Gilchrist talks about in England. Um, and then the cloistral the cloisteral sites would have had ranges uh, around the central cloister, um, and then the rest of the sites. Some of them have small freestanding buildings, um, and and others have very little trace of um, any other buildings beside the church, and so it it would suggest to me that they probably had little annex for a, attached accommodation, for example, at um, uh, Kilmaine or somewhere like that.
0: So what was daily life back... What uh, Granted, I know we're talking about a very gigantic period of time, mm-hmm. but um, what would daily life have been like for people that were um, at these sites?
1: Well, again, if, for the early medieval period, uh, we're not quite sure um, how how they would have conducted their lives um, on a daily basis but in the later medieval period uh, we know of several rules of the continental orders and we would suppose that our nunneries were following those rules also even though we don't have any of those documents written down anymore so most of the orders um, of which the augustinian order was the most popular in ireland um, i know for scotland and england it was the benedictine order Um, that was the most popular. But for Ireland, it was the Augustinian. Um, So they would have followed the rule of of, um, Augustine um, and they would have had what's known as a divine office or which was really the daily timetable where they would use the church seven or eight times a day and they would um, either have mass or they would go in and and sing and have psalms. Um, And then they would undertake their uh, daily, more mundane work in, in between those periods. Um, And so it was probably, um, so they built up this ritual and and routine on a daily basis. Um, They would have had um, masses every day. And on feast days, they may have had more than one mass. They were um, remembering their patrons' anniversaries, their deaths and their birthdays. And so um, some days probably would have been very busy uh, with uh,
0: carrying out the divine office every day. And then this might sound like more of like a chicken or the egg question, but did daily did life uh, daily life affect the architecture and the landscape, or did the architecture and the landscape affect daily life? Yes,
1: I would say yes. That is a, a real chicken and egg um, a chicken and egg question um, because I suppose the um, the divine office would have would have built up from the cloistral arrangement, but um, a lot of my nunneries don't have that cloistral arrangement, or they only have portions of it. So I would think that it was the ritual and performance that was dictating how the structures were used. Um, and uh, Claudia Mohn's um, work of uh, work of German nunneries, um, her her work, I think it came out in two. 2006 is an, an excellent example of the variety of um, of arrangements that you could have with buildings. And of course, Germany, their upstanding remains are really good for, for many of the orders, particularly um, the poor Clares and the Cistercians. And what Claudia Mohn has shown is that um, she has every possible scenario of church and buildings and cloistral arrangements and galleries and two-story, two stories and single stories and freestanding structures, and they were all carrying out their um their day their daily divine office and their rituals and performance in all of these types of structures. So I would say that the divine office and the way they lived their life probably dictated the structures that
0: they used. And then were within you to also talk about the burial evidence uh, within your book. So, was the status or the life of female religious then reflected in their burials? Um,
1: well, for the evidence in Ireland, it's very hard to say um, because the the positively identified burials of nuns in Ireland are very few. Um, in my excavations in Saint Catharines, we got about. Um, Probably about five burials, which were female, um, and which I could I I interpreted them as nuns, but because they don't have any, you know, they don't have a label on them saying I was a nun. Um, it's very hard to it's very hard to actually definitively say one hundred percent that this female burial was a nun and this female burial wasn't. um, so, um and that's because at nunneries also they had a mixed con- community so when you excavate you find um, men women and children buried and their their burials are not as segregated as you have in male houses so for the purposes of my book I identified the female burials at St Catharines as being um, nuns but they had nothing they had nothing uh, no grave goods or associated artifacts or symbolism that would have told me that they that they were nuns um, and that's quite uh, another thing about burial evidence um, archaeologically is that a lot of these sites have been used over a long period of time. Um, so the, so burials in many of the nunnery sites, um, they've been used you know, long after the nunnery's gone out of use. So mm-hmm. the actual nunnery phase of burial um, have, has been destroyed or severely interfered with. Um, so a lot of the burial evidence that I discuss I'm looking at it in um, the context of the British evidence also.
0: Granted, I know we can't define them as such then we have to use much more of a broad term describing them but were they de- located in any particular location um,
1: um, Well, there is a general trend that um, um, uh, religious will be um, buried on the north side of their of their churches and indeed we did find some burials female burials to the north side of our church at St. Catherine's, but we also found there were a few children buried there as well. Um, but in a lot of these uh, monasteries, um, burials, they've consecrated, not only have they consecrated outside the church, but they've also consecrated inside the church and the the cloister walkways and the sometimes the cloister garden itself. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So with uh, the burials at Saint Catharines, we found them in the church to the north of the church, and in the cloister ambulatory or the walkways around where um, where we put our trenches. Funnily enough, um, in Saint Catharines, we didn't find any burials in the cloister garden, and that um, speaks to me that they had enough they had enough burial space um, outside and in the church and in the cloister ambulatories that they didn't feel the need to use the cloister garden. But we know from other monastic excavations, such as I'm thinking of um, the Franciscan friary in Ennis, which was used over a very long period of time. That's Ennis in County Clare, um, a medieval town. Um, And there was burials absolutely everywhere when they excavated inside the church, all around the cloister walkways and in the cloister um, garden or garth also and the and the burials there were um in places maybe two or three people deep so they were burying over a long period of time Uh,
0: both in your book as well as in the interview you brought up references to burials located in on both in britain as well as the continent how was female (coughs) religious different uh from that of britain and of the continent
1: uh, well I wouldn't um, I wouldn't say that it was different they were still following the 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 divine office um, and doing that ritual and performance and using their church every day um, but perhaps the communities in Ireland were probably much smaller than some of the ones in England and the continent I know um, some communities of uh, of nuns were over a hundred maybe a, um, a hundred members of the community at any one time in Ireland. I would suggest that um, the communities were much smaller and maybe they had 12 or 16 individuals, but they, they would have been following the same kind of a lifestyle and they would have, um, they would have had the mundane tasks as well of, um, you know, eating and sleeping um, in dormitory arrangements. Uh, they, some of the nunneries were probably schools as well. So they had some education going on um and they would have been interacting with the the local community where their church was a parish church so it wouldn't have been there probably would have been regional differences but the the overall pattern of of female religious life was probably very similar
0: um and then you've did desk bakes sorry you did in addition to desk-based work, you also talked about, um, you have other forms of evidence within your um, book. Would you please talk about the role that archaeological fieldwork played in your research?
1: Yeah, I found it, um, well, being an archaeologist, it was very important that I went out <laughs> in the field. Um, uh, and I, I was surprised at some of the sites, um, like we mentioned earlier, about the variety of remains um, Uh. Nine times out of 10, you can identify the church. But then there was a, quite a variety of, of other structures around. Um, and in some cases, uh, the remains, um, you know, weren't great. And in other places, I was surprised at what, what did remain. Um, and what's important to remember with archaeological work as well is that um, many of these sites have turned into uh, burial places of the, which have been used right up until the present day. So a lot of them have turned into kind of graveyards. Um, And so a lot of the medieval evidence um, would be be not as obvious um, as at other sites. Um, And then over time, a lot of these sites may have been used when they were dissolved in the 16th century. Some of the the nunnery sites, their their stonework could have been taken away to build big houses elsewhere. Or in the case of St. Catherine's, the nunnery was turned into kind of the the farmyard of of a big house that was built in the 18th and 19th century. So some of these sites actually have a long period of use um, well after the nunnery went out of use. And interestingly enough, a lot of them have pre-nunnery archaeology as well. So for instance, um, at St. Catherine's again, there was um, some prehistoric burials found when they were actually building Old Abbey House in the 19th century. Um, so you can see that the landscape of St. Catharines has been used over a long period of time. And whether the nuns actually knew there was prehistoric burials there is a, another debate altogether. Um, but it just shows that this landscape has been used over um,
0: a very long period of time. And then how did St. Catharines compare, I guess, to your other sites that you talk about within the book?
1: It was Saint Catherine's. um, I I would argue is probably the best preserved um, nunnery in Ireland because um, it has excellent upstanding remains. Um, It's got it's close to a plan quite clearly still upstanding, Um, and it was one of the few sites that doesn't seem to have been used um, after the nunnery went out of use. So after the sixteenth century. It doesn't seem to have um, continued as a burial place. Um, It wasn't knocked down. The old abbey house was actually built next to it rather than destroying the nunnery itself. Um, And so it continued to be used um, as a farmyard and stables. Um, There was a handball alley built there in the 19th century. You can just about make out the remains of it. Um, but the the structure itself and its underlying archaeology remains pretty intact, I think, from, from its dissolution. Um, and you can't say that about many of the nunnery sites in, in Ireland.
0: So what is, thinking of the book overall, as well as your research, um, what is your favourite part? Or what was your favourite part to either uh, carry out research-wise or writing-wise?
1: Uh, the... Um, um, I very much enjoyed doing the excavations at St. Catharines because I, I am an archaeologist and I like, um, I like doing the digging. Um, and I must um, have a shout out to my colleagues in Aegis Archaeology um, and my husband, Frank Coyne, who helped me with those excavations. And also students of University College Cork because I ran the excavation as the department's training excavation. So um, I got a lot more um, excavating done than I would have done otherwise. And I'm very grateful to all those students, many of whom have gone on to become professional archaeologists um, for for doing that. But, um, I mean, and the excavations at St. Catharines shows what um, a nunnery site can, the information it can reveal, the, the pottery and how they would have used their buildings and the burials themselves. Um, it really adds to the archaeological record. So I'd be uh, very excited if somebody else would... Uh, would do um, another another notary excavation and we can see what we can come up with.
0: Fingers crossed? (laughs) Yes, yes, fingers crossed, yes. Um, What is the one thing that you hope your readers take away from reading your book?
1: Um, What I would really like is that they they would identify that um, the female religious, just as Roberta Gilchrist said, that they were not deviant to a male standard. Because when you start looking at the the literature of of nunneries over the last hundred years or so, many of them are written off because, you know, they weren't as wealthy as the male houses or they weren't as big or they weren't this or they weren't that. And so they kind of get written out of the picture. So it's to try and draw the female religious back into the monastic narrative again um, and realize that they're they're not deviant to this male standard. Um, In many cases, they were just as wealthy as the male houses when you actually analyze them. Um, and by the same token, there was many male houses, particularly Augustinian ones in Ireland that were quite small, um, just like just like the nunneries. So the wealth and status of these sites has nothing to do with the, the gender of their communities. It has a lot more, I think, to do with their with their patrons and benefactors. And so if if. um. Uh, the interested lay reader or the uh, the archaeologist will will take that from the book and maybe look into these places in a bit more detail i'll be I'd be very happy with that.
0: Uh, do you have any future projects or anything else that you'd like to share on the or mention on the podcast?
1: Well the um, I've actually we're just commencing a project which is based on a conference that we did in twenty twenty one called Brides of Christ where we looked at um, female religious from the very early medieval period all the way through to the um, early modern period. Um, and in that, we had groups of, um, there was archaeology and, and historians, medieval historians and early modern historians. Um, and we, we drew together the, the theme of Brides of Christ. Um, and we think it was uh, very successful. And we're just uh, working on an, the edited volume of that which is going to come out in the series of Glenstall history um, volumes, which Four Courts Press um, publish. And my colleagues um, who are editing it with me are Dr. Brona McSheen from uh, NUIG in Galway, and Brother Colmar Clawbig, and Brother Martin Brown, who have edited um, several volumes of the Glenstall histories already. And um, I think Brides of Christ is going to be their fifth one. So we're looking forward to having that out towards the end
0: of this year. I attended the conference and I'm, ex- I'm really excited and looking forward to um, obtaining my own copy of that book now. <laughs> Glad that it's being published. Uh, thank you so much, Tracy, for joining me today to talk about your book. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Tracy Collins' book, Female Monasticism in Medieval Ireland and Archaeology, is available now through Cork University Press. If you'd like to hear more episodes, subscribe to New Books on Irish Studies on the New Books Network, website, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. Until next time, stay safe and keep reading.